0: world's best. Carlson. Carlson, 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 hoi, här kommer Carlson, 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 Carlson. ingen faktiskt, ingen annan. Carlson, heller så bra som mig. Carlson, 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 Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, Carlson. Carlson Welcome, everybody, to another summer series episode of the Keith and Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. We are live on Blab. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski.
1: With me, Brian Com. Hello, Elon from Ottawa. I am Brian Com. I was trying to think, maybe at the start of the show, to take out the awkwardness of this part, I could just say where I am and where you are, you're in Toronto.
0: Exciting stuff, Brian. That definitely, you know, no awkwardness there. I think you've quenched a lot of people's curiosities as to our exact location, so it is set. I'm in Toronto, you're in Ottawa, we've got a lot to talk about this week. It's a summer series, you might be thinking, there's nothing for these guys to talk about, nothing's going on, there's a... NHL playoffs. Two teams are left. Big deal. Big whoop. Well, actually, we've got a big slate of content prepared. We're going to talk a bit about what's going on in the playoffs. Then we're going to talk about some players who had disappointing years this year, and if we think that that's going to happen again, or if they're going to be able to bounce back. Got a lot of interesting players to discuss. Before we get into everything, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, the best fantasy hockey website out there. I say it every week, and it's true. Like they're still just putting out so much content in the playoffs, fantasy relevant content. Uh, they have, like, a prospects guide out, which is going to be really handy for you. You might want to check that out. I don't have to say. Dabrahockey.com. It's fantastic.
1: Dabrahockey.com is fantastic. An amazing resource. There is still content day after day after day. If you are one of those people, and if you're listening, I imagine that you are. You're one of those people who the fantasy season never actually ends for your thinking about it all year round through the playoffs. There's no break. Hockey is your place to go.
0: Yeah, there's actually an interesting article up recently talking about, just randomly, Alex Galchenyuk, Sean Monaghan, and Philip Forsberg, and just like a discussion of how they'll do next year. And I'm very curious, actually, about a guy like Alex Galchenyuk, who, you know, started so badly, ended so well, what do we expect for next year? But that's, you know, read and see what Dobber says, and maybe we'll talk about him later in the summer. Brian, let's get on to our first fantasy hockey headline of the week which is the NHL playoffs, and we're in the finals now, three games in. And you know what I just realized? I feel like we've been doing the whole summer series throughout this playoffs, and we haven't really talked about the guy who's currently leading the playoffs and scoring, Logan Couture. What an amazing playoffs he's having. He has 26 points in 21 games. And this is a guy who was injured for a lot of last year, wasn't really able to bounce back and like get back to what we were expecting. We saw him as more of a 65, 70-point guy. He ended up with only 36 points in 52 games on the year, which is a 57-point pace. Before that, two straight seasons of a 67-point pace. Like I said, now he's like, killing it in the playoffs over a point per game. I want to know your thoughts now. At this point, what do we think about Logan Couture going into next year? Are you drafting him as like a 60-point guy or more like a 70-point guy? And does the playoffs affect it?
1: Logan Couture, I think, is not who he was this season, right? He had a really weak season. It was interrupted by injury. Maybe that injury affected him beyond the time uh, that he was actually on the bench for. Uh, but Logan Couture, like, the, the the thing I look at to see whether or not I can rely on him to come back strong is if I'm looking at his shot numbers, uh, specifically his shot attempt numbers, I'm looking at his Corsi per 60 minutes, From the beginning of his career, he's been 16.6 and 17.6, 16.5, 16.8, 16.9, 16.9, and then last season was 14.9. So about two fewer shot attempts per 60 minutes last season than the rest of his career, which which has been extraordinarily consistent. So for that reason, uh, I expect Logan Couture to be able to bounce back in some respects next year. He had just 17 even strength points uh, when he's used to having 33. Of course, that's in fewer minutes, but it still was not quite the points per 60 pace we've seen from him in previous seasons. It wasn't that far down, actually, from what we saw from him just last season when people were still wondering, ah, what's this guy's upside? How high can I expect him to go? I think somewhere between 60 and 70 points is where I'd expect Logan Couture to settle in. Under a 60-point pace is not something I expect him to be repeating, and he is sort of letting that cat out of the bag right now with the playoff performance he's putting in now.
0: Yeah, I guess so you're saying a floor of 60 points and high of, like, maybe, who knows, like, probably... Closer to sixty five, seventy. but what we're seeing in the playoffs is he could be over a point per game. Obviously, that would be tough to do over an entire regular season. But, you know, another thing I think that was a big part of the reason why Couture was struggling a bit during the year is, like, his line mates weren't that great. Like, you know, Pavelski and, and Thornton get to play together. And actually, there was a lot of the year where Couture wasn't even playing with Marlowe. Like, Marlowe was playing with, I think, Joel Ward and sometimes, like, Melker Carlson. I can't remember exactly who, but I'm seeing that... Logan Couture played a lot of last season with Tommy Wingles and Eunice Donskoy, third game hero Eunice Donskoy from yesterday, but, you know, not the kind of guy that you'd get too excited about having as your line mates, but I did notice in overtime at one point the Sharks did load up the first line and put Thornton, Pavelski, and Couture all together that line didn't end up scoring. But, like, you'd have to imagine as time goes on and Couture, you know, sort of, like, really becomes one of their main players, maybe when Joe Thornton finally starts to slow down, you could think things are going to have to just get better and better for Couture as he's going to just earn that for sure spot in the top six and, you know, playing with really good players.
1: Yeah, that's a good thought, Elon. And, you know, everybody's really excited about Eunice Don's going, wow, Logan Couture got to play with him because his stock, of course, is an all-time high after that overtime winner. Donskoy has been pretty reliable in the playoffs too. We should give him some credit. 12 points in 21 games in the postseason thus far, which is uh, a little higher than his regular season pace. Just about a half point per game guy. So playing with him all season long and uh, uh, Wingles, who is not a point per game guy or even a half point per game guy most of the time, uh, that will affect your point totals. And it did Couture's, I think, even if He does end up with the same guys on his wings. I still think he can put in a better effort. It would be best, though, if he can get an upgrade on either side of him.
0: Yeah, so we're seeing in the playoffs... Look, we're not surprised, basically, by what's happening in the playoffs. You know, another guy that maybe some people were surprised by with their playoffs and we weren't as much was, of course, Jonathan Druin, who we talked about a lot during the Summer Series. He ended up... You know, last time we did an episode, the... The Tampa Bay Lightning were still in this, but they got eliminated in Game 7, and drew ended with 14 points in 17 games, so a great playoffs. But you know what? Another guy who had 14 points in 17 games, who's maybe more unheralded, is is, uh, Victor Hedman. Like, that's much more impressive, because he's a defenseman. You don't expect a defenseman to get as many points as forwards, but he really showed his worth for the Tampa Bay Lightning because Anton Strawman was out and Hedman was carrying the load as an offensive defenseman and he had an amazing playoffs. This is after, like, not a bad regular season, you know? Like, just a quiet season where he had 47 points in 78 games. But, you know, I remember the year before, like, he was doing so great. Like he was close to like a 70-point pace before he got injured. Then when he came back he wasn't as good. And we had really high hopes for him going into this year and he didn't exactly live up to it. He wasn't that for sure top power play defenseman that maybe we were expecting. Like Anton Strawman ended up taking a lot of that role and that took away some of Hedman's responsibilities. But I'm still curious to know like how high are we now on Hedman? Like he had this great playoffs. He had a pretty good season, like a 50-point pace is nothing to sneeze at, but maybe we saw him as potentially more of a 60-point place pace uh defenseman like which side do you see him on brian going into next year closer to 50 or closer to 60 if he stays healthy of course
1: i think Hedman is probably still who we have seen him to be which is a guy who can get to 50 uh, but you can't quite expect that top tier elite defenseman scoring from him At all strengths, and we've been having this conversation in our Facebook group recently, how Victor Hedman, his numbers are incredible. What he's able to do with the ice time he gets, he gets about 23 minutes a game, and in those 23 minutes, he is one of the best per 60-minute point scorers in the NHL. In fact, I think if I'm remembering right, he was third in the league in points per 60 or even strength points scored uh, last this past season. But if you add power play points to the mix, He falls all the way down to, like, top 20 material, which is still good, but it's Far Cry from top five. So you see a lot of guys pass him in scoring because they are getting more power play opportunity than he is. Tampa is actually using him as their second most common power play quarterback behind Anton Stroman. And because of that, uh, he doesn't get the same opportunities to put in power play point after power, power play point after power play point. And I don't know if that's going to change next year. Tampa has two fairly balanced power play units. They have no need to send him out there on the first power play or or on the most prolific power play because they're doing just fine as they are. I think they like using him in the role he is right now. Anybody who hopes that he still plays an extra four or five minutes a night come the regular season, I think you might be in for disappointment. That might be what gets him to be, you know, a 55, 60-point guy for sure. But I don't think he's going to get there when Tampa is playing every night. It's not the playoffs. They're playing with their full six D-men. Everybody's healthy. Um, so very exciting run from Victor Hedman. He deserves this kind of spotlight for what he does, both defensively and offensively, at even strength. But until he becomes his team's main primary guy with no competition on the power play, uh, he's not going to quite crack that elite... Uh, all situation defenseman scoring tier.
0: Okay, so Brian, I think we're on the same page. I'm going to throw something at you that I know you hate. I'm going to ask you a, a, for a player comparison right now for who would you draft first? next year because we gave a lot of credit to a guy like Shane Ghostisbear who you know was a rookie put up like a 60 point pace in his rookie season then we have a guy like Hedman who's done it before but maybe isn't getting used like I'm just trying to think when when you're drafting like in our patron rankings like every day we've been ranking the next player We're up to 55 right now and actually yesterday Victor Hedman finally got in at 55 while bear Ghostbear bear was ranked at 39 he was ranked a long time ago and I think it's you know like I feel like I'd be more comfortable with Hedman just because he's a more sure thing and Ghostbear maybe he's going to struggle a little bit, maybe he could still get knocked out of that position. You know, there's Provorov coming up, but cu- curious to know, who would you take between the two?
1: You know, if I'm swinging for the fences, I take Ghost Bear. I think he's got the higher upside because he does get that even strength responsibility and power play ice time. Uh, but if I'm going for the sure thing, yeah, I feel much more confident uh in placing a bet that Hedman finishes somewhere Uh, within a point or two of 50 than Ghost Bear does, just because, yeah, it's going to be his sophomore season. Teams are going to be keying in on him. Although, to give Ghost Bear credit, uh, over at Broad Street Hockey, uh, Charlie O'Connor, I believe, just uh, recently... Uh, wrote an article about the Flyers' zone exits and how he's been tracking them manually and how defensemen, how many touches Flyers' D men are getting in their own zone and how successful they are at getting out of the zone with control, without control, turning over the puck. And Ghost Bear is just incredible uh, relative to the rest of the Flyers' D court. He is heads and tails above them. Mark Streit also looks good. Michael Delzato also looks good. I mean, the guys you'd expect to look good do look good. But Ghost Bear is at the top of that list in all of the sort of puck moving metrics that count, which makes me feel like, you know, he's not just a pretty face when the Flyers do get it into the zone. He's not just somebody who is happening to be involved in creating or cashing in on scoring play. He's somebody who is starting opportunities to score way back right where they originate in his own zone.
0: Yeah, he's fantastic, obviously. Like, it's going to be so exciting to see what Ghost Bear can do next year. But I I don't know. I don't want to sell Hedman short because you said, like, Ghost Bear has a higher upside. Like... I could see a situation where if let's say Strawman gets injured or just Tampa decides what we're gonna give Hedman his due and like make him play on the top power play and give him big minutes. Like I could see Hedman having a huge upside, you know, a lot of talent there on Tampa. Like I could see him hitting 60 plus next year. Like he almost did it a couple of seasons ago before he got injured. So I think it's definitely in the cards. I think they both have really high upside, so it's it's an interesting way to look at things. Okay. Let's go now to the one last thing, I guess, before we get into our sort of prepared content of the guys from the regular season. We had some news. Alex Steen, who had a pretty decent playoffs, and actually I'm saying that without having the numbers in front of me, but (laughs) he had a great season anyways, a 64-point pace this season. Yeah, you get them, Brian. But, like, news came out that he's had uh, shoulder surgery, and now he's going to be out four to six weeks. And if you look at the calendar, four weeks would put him right at the door of the regular season starting. So if he's only four weeks, he'll miss training camp and hopefully get in for the first game. But, oh, did I say weeks? I mean months. By the way, four to six months, Alex Dean will be out. Oh, live show. I can't go back. But, yeah, so he's going to be out four to six months. Four months meaning he gets there at the start of the regular season. Six months means he misses the first two months of the year. Let's, like, play, uh, you know, let's just go right in the middle. Say five months he'll miss. If he misses the first month of the regular season... What does that do for his draft status? Because obviously we have to draft before the season starts. Obviously we'll know more about his injury status. But this is the kind of thing that we have every year where we have a player who we expect to be really good. Like He had 52 points last year in 67 games. Like I said, a really strong point pace. And he's been good. Like For the last three seasons, he really broke out as a star in the league. Like He was always getting closer to like a 50-point pace. And then we all remember 2013-14 where he had 62 points in 68 games. He was leading the league for a lot of the season before he got injured. Then he followed up the next year... Still really good. 64 points in 74 games. Then last year, like I said, 52 points in 67. It would be great if he could play a full healthy season. Obviously, he's not going to do that next year. But when you're going to your draft table, do you dock him? Do you drop him down your list because he's going to be injured to start the year? And if you do, by how much?
1: You know, injuries to start the year aren't something that terribly worry me because I always feel like I can just grab the guy, put him on, e- put him on IR, and and then, you know, picks up a replacement, especially, you know, Steen's going to be gone four to six months, so it's June now. He could very well be back in October, but by the time the season starts, maybe he'll miss 10, 15 games. In any case, I I hope his value drops in in that sort of situation. Eberly is a guy going into this year, or this past season, whose value did drop, and a lot of people thought they were getting a really good bargain on him when he was able to be drafted a couple year, uh, a couple rounds later than usual. Unfortunately, Everly didn't perform up to expectations for a large part of the season. But I think that's more of a fluky thing than anything. I would not dock Alex Steen a lot of points. He's proven himself to be a pretty reliable sixty-point guy. Yeah, he's getting a little older. Uh, I wouldn't be terribly Worried about it coming off injury. There's another red flag, uh, but no more red flags than usual for a guy his age. Uh, so I would hope maybe he slips a little bit to me. I, I'm not necessarily. I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure. I would move him much further down my own draft list, uh, but I would hope he would fall down other people so I could grab him later. And Elon, just to go back to your original playoff performance point, it seemed like he had a pretty good playoffs. Uh, he is on the Donskoy half point per game pace. Or he was, anyway, before the Blues got eliminated. He ranked eighth on the team in playoff scoring behind surprising. seven other guys. So, yeah, a little bit surprising. I suppose maybe that's one of the reason the Blues got as far as they could, but also didn't get much further. Alex Steen, get it together. Although, if he's going to have surgery now, I imagine <laughs> that something painful was happening all the while. Right, exactly. Maybe a
0: comparable, maybe Everly isn't the best comparable for... Uh, like Steen this year, like Eberly last year. How about a guy like Pavel Datsyuk? He was injured to start the year. He's 37 years old, so a bit older than Alex Steen. But, you know, Steen isn't too young at 32. But Datsyuk came in late in the year and ended up putting up 48 points in 66 games, which is probably what we would love to see from Alex Steen. So, you know, it's possible to come back from an injury, you know, wipe off the rust. I remember Datsyuk actually started pretty slow and then started to heat up after so you know you might expect that for the first week or so maybe you even leave Alex Steen on the IR you do that sneaky thing where if you don't have to take him out you leave him there wait until things settle down figure out who you're gonna drop but anyway yeah it's one of those things we're gonna have a few more players it always happens that there's gonna be some players going into the draft that are injured to start the season and they're gonna drop and then I think Brian and I are pretty consistent in saying if you're in a head-to-head league like don't even worry about it you know even if you maybe hurt yourself for a couple matches near the beginning of the season hopefully they'll be back and help take you into the playoffs and take you to the championship and you'll be happy that you got him so late but it depends on a player by player basis but Alexine has been really good for three years now so I'm not too concerned about him once he's healthy
1: yeah exactly you take it for a few weeks you brace yourself for those weeks and then you're excited because you have say a fourth round caliber player that you picked in the sixth round Um, and the rest of your lineup should help you get the rest of the way And yeah, Datsuk started so slow. I remember I traded for him. Like last year, thinking that it was a really slick move, I was so frustrated with him for so long.
0: Yes, yeah, he came in in November, three points in nine games in November. So that must have been a really tough struggle for like half a month. But then 11 points in 14 in December, 10 points in 11 in January, 12 and 14 in February. So he basically became just under a point per game player for the rest of the season. So it was definitely worth it. And I assume, Brian, you won all your pools. So it worked out well for you that you picked up that stick. I'm not sure which league you're talking about, but pretty sure it's one of them that you won. Correct?
1: Yeah, I won it, but no thanks to him. If it was closer, it might have cost me the pool. <laughs> so oh, let's I'm,
0: just, uh, sure.
1: let's just we'll write that one off.
0: Okay, sure. You write off wins, of course. So No, write off
1: the transaction. Like someone dropped Datsuk and you picked him up? No, I traded for him and I can't for the trade? life of me. I I think McKinnon was involved. Oh no, Brian Little. Oh, I forget. No, I got Brian Little. I don't remember. I'm, and I'm not going to okay. go look either.
0: That's okay, let's move on. Actually, before we get into our content for the episode, why don't we give a shout-out to our sponsor, SeatGeek. This site, man, oh man, don't you hate it when you go to these other ticket sites and you can't even figure out what the final price is going to be for the tickets? And, like, you know, there's... No rebates and prizes that you get with SeatGeek. It's all good stuff. It's the first place that you should go to look for tickets to a game or a concert. If you have it on your phone, you could set alerts for when the prices go down. And, like I was saying with this rebate, if you sign up for SeatGeek with the offer code KEEPING for Keeping Carlson, you get a $20 discount on your first ticket.
1: Yeah, which is a great deal, and SeatGeek, like, it takes, it just saves you a lot of time. It takes all the tickets from whatever ticket sites you might visit regularly, or the best ones anyway, and puts them all together on one site for you to look at, and you get that little $20 promo code bump, which won't help you a whole lot if you're looking for tickets, let's say, to the Tragically Hip in Kingston. I know a lot of people were complaining about not being able to get tickets and scalpers, so I took a quick look to see what they are on SeatGeek. Unfortunately, they are eleven. They start at one thousand one hundred and six dollars, but they could be one thousand eighty-six dollars with that promo code. Keeping
0: there, you go. So check it out. Tweet at us. Let us know if you end up getting your offer code on SeatGeek and you go to a game, a cool game. Like, let us know. I'd be curious to know where people are going with their SeatGeek promos. Uh, you have just a little bit of time left if you live in Pittsburgh or San Jose to see a hockey game for this season. I guess maybe you could see a minor league game. Okay, but over Brian. the summer,
1: Elon, just just before we, sorry, continue, over the summer with no hockey going on, you can use that promo code for any event. It does not have to be a hockey game. That's why I went to Tragically Hip Root.
0: There you go. Well, I'd, make, I'd make it I tragically.
1: Know. Oh, yeah. Blue Jays. This okay, Blue Jays. Baseball. Right.
0: They won today. I watched some of it. So we want to talk about some players who we expected to do well this year but then ended up not doing so well. People who disappointed the players who drafted them. Not necessarily all people who had, like, horrible years, but that were disappointing relative to where they were drafted. We want to look into these seasons and see, is this something now? Do we have to expect this is the new reality for these players? Or was it just a bump in the road they're going to bounce back to being what we thought they were going into the year for next season? Here's the first player I want to talk about, Brian. Let's see if the people in the chat room can guess. I'm going to give some hints here. This is someone who was drafted in the first round of a lot of pools. He was seen as, like, a point-per-game guy, but then ended up with only 67 points on the season. People were hoping for, like, 80. He ended up with 67 points, a 70-point pace, because he missed a few games. Who am I talking about? Uh, No one guessed it? Oh, close. Good guess. Parisi. We might actually talk about Parisi. No, I'm talking about Claude Giroux. Claude Giroux, a guy who's been just so good for so long now. He's just been, like, a over like almost a point per game player like the year before that 73 points in 81 games which is also actually not that great 86 and 82 the year before 47 and 48 the year before 94 points the year before he's been a true superstar but then his worst season in a long time this past season 67 points in 78 games and, you know, we spent a lot of the season talking about Jacob Voracek and how disappointing he was, and he really jumped out as being brutal at the start of the year before he sort of bounced back near the end. And I feel like we sort of gave Giroud a pass. Like, we were like, oh, he's fine. It's Voracek who's really the one that we're worried about, and that's probably because Voracek was down to the third line for a lot of this season, while Giroud was on the top line. We were talking about other guys like Simmons and Shen, who both had amazing years, and they were playing on the top line with Giroud. So why wasn't Giroud as good as before? That's the question I want to ask you, Brian. Is he still a first-round guy? He's obviously still a great... Player seventy-point pace is nothing to sneeze at, but is he someone that you should be drafting in the first round still, or is he now more of a second-round guy?
1: Yeah, so if we look at the big picture of the last several years, there's no question why he has been a first-round guy. He's been outstanding year upon year after year after year after year, and then he did see like a valley in his production for. Uh, But, you know, say the calendar year of 2015, so the last half of 14-15 and the first half of the 2015-16 season, but by the end of this most recent season, he seems to have more or less dug himself out of it. After the All-Star break, he had 21, excuse me, he had 28 points in 31 games, and in the two years before this last one, uh, he had notched precisely 37 points with the man advantage, and that is every bit as big a number as it sounds, and I, I don't know if I transition to that point well enough. I want to point out 37 points in the two years before this last season on the power play. Huge number. It was enough to comfortably lead the league in power play points in 2014-15, and it was good enough for fourth in the league and miles ahead of fifth place in the league in 2013-14. Had you repeated that 37 points on the power play in 2015-16. He would have led the league in that category once again, but he managed a meager 27 points. Uh, And those 10 missing power play points are essentially the difference between the Kludgerou you expected in the first round and the Kludgerou you ended up getting. So where did those 10 power play points go? That's what we need to find to decide if he is still first round material or if he does get a bump about that size. Um, interestingly enough, his 27 power play points this past season still good enough to rank him third in the NHL league-wide uh, in power play points, which points to like maybe this initial theory that maybe this power play outage, so to speak, for Giroux wasn't necessarily his problem. Maybe it was a league-wide power play scoring depression uh, if you look at the top end of the league power play point scoring, it was seriously down last year. You had Patrick Kane leading the league with 35 power play points, and then the rest gets pretty flat pretty fast. Again, with Giroux already in third place with eight fewer points. Um, it seems like the power play points were a little more spread out, and something to look into for a future episode is whether there are fewer power play opportunities across the league or if power play uh, efficiency was down across the league, so success rates for teams uh, on the power play was just not as good as it was in the previous seasons. Um, This league-wide depression, I'm going on about it because it's something I'm curious about. It's just one possible explanation. If you look at Philadelphia's own team-specific trends to try and figure it out, though, you'll see that their 53 power play goals last year were a three-year low, so fewer goals on which Claude Giroux could get a point on on the power play. But um, they did get a fairly normal amount of power play opportunities. And their power play success percentage was within reason compared to the last two seasons too. So I'm not sure it was a team-specific thing either. Uh, So the last place we're going to look to find these missing 10 points is Giroud himself. And what I'm going to tell you about him is pretty boring. But it should be comforting to a lot of pulleys out there. Hoping that the answer is yes, Giroud is a first-rounder. Giroux was still essentially doing his job on the power play. He's getting pucks towards the net, getting tons of ice time, playing with skilled power play players, uh, but the shooting percentages, and this is, you know, the, the obvious conclusion sometimes, they just weren't in his favor. It was a huge dip compared to the previous seasons, and with better luck, quote-unquote, on the power play, Giroux would have definitely reclaimed a fair number of those ten missing points. So what I'm going to suggest is that you don't give up on Giroux. He's still got another year and a half before he turns 30. It's not like he's getting old or anything. And I still see that point per game potential in him. His even strength production has been solid all the while. Just hope that your draft buddies get really down on him, and you send you maybe you tell them, ah, uh, you know, he's actually he's turning 36 next year. Uh, that's why he didn't do so well last year. Try and try and fake him out because. He is still a first-round guy, and you'll be laughing if you can grab him with anything less than that usual first-round pick that it would cost you.
0: Interesting, Brian. Yeah, I mean, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. It seems like Klojiru still has the capability to be this elite player, and it's just maybe, you know, he had some bad luck. Like you say, his percentages were a bit down. But, you know, maybe he might just not be a first-round player anymore, but not due to anything he did himself. Like, could it just be that he might get pushed out? Like, if you look at the Keeping Carlson patron rankings that I mentioned before, Giroux came in at 16, which is, like, obviously very respectable, but that would be outside of the first round on, like, a 12-person pool or even a 14-person league. And, you know, what? I'm looking and seeing it. I can't tell. Like, I'm curious to so know, Brian, I'm gonna name you some guys. Tell me who you draft Giroud in front of, of the people who are ahead of him. Like, I'm seeing obviously, so the guys are, like, Ovechkin, Crosby, Patrick Kane. He's someone who jumped ahead of Claude Giroux like at this point would you actually still want Giroux over Kane like you would have last year or do you think Kane has earned his spot ahead of Giroux for a draft and obviously there's different categories and different positions but just thinking of like points overall I guess
1: it's a tough one that pause there is not like an edited pause that is me thinking about the answer to your question the suspense I'm sorry you're not going to be rewarded from that moment (laughs) uh because I I don't really have an I think you could go either way I think you can believe that Patrick Kane is going to keep it up, and to some extent he should. He's been a very good player in the league for a long time, and we've talked about that. And Claude Giroux, though, like you said, if he get if he loses his first round standing, it's only because there are more plentiful other first round alternatives. It, it shouldn't be because you feel like his game has slipped. I feel like you project him for about the same number of points you've had him for in the last couple seasons. But if there are more guys projected ahead of that total at this point, well, then, yeah, I guess he does fall a little bit.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, you also have, like, other guys... There are also some other guys who have jumped ahead of him, like Connor McDavid. I feel like a lot of people now see as someone better than Claude Giroux, who wasn't last year. You know, you've got Brent Burns, who's in the conference. Like, in our patron rankings, he's ranked eighth. And, of course, this is a league that counts blocks. And so, you know, he gets a... a- Bump there, but you know there's a couple of guys that maybe have jumped ahead while Giroux you know for, to some people maybe fell back, but even the people who where he stayed the same, maybe that's not good enough to get him in the first round, so it'll be fun to see where he gets drafted next year. I feel like he's probably going to end up being more like where he is in these patron rankings.
1: I also went that whole way, Elon, without referring to, and I did it on purpose because what he did. Uh, I'll finish that first sentence clause without referring to that huge trouble that all the Flyers had at the start of the season. When we talked about Voracek, we mentioned it too, how nobody was scoring. Everything was just going sideways for the Flyers. Uh, Giroux, I'm trying to remember how many games he went without a goal. I know he had just, you know, five points in his first 10 games. Uh, after that, he picked it right up. But, you know, essentially there was that dry spell too where everybody was very concerned. And it, that was a team-wide thing. Or so it seemed. So where was I going with that? All I'm saying, I'm not... I'm not worried about Giroux. What was your last point, Elon? If you remind me, I can tell you how that was supposed to speak to it. No,
0: you're good. You're, okay. you're. Yeah, the the Flyers had a bad start to the year. If you take that away, Giroux was probably what a lot of us expected for most of the year. I think that's basically what you're saying. You could yes. say that about a lot of people on the Flyers. Even though, you know, guys like Simmons and Shen, like I mentioned before, you know, they're getting a, a pass. Like they didn't do so great at the beginning of the year either, but they were so great near the end of the year that people are very excited about them.
1: And expectations for them... Aren't his lofty.
0: No, but we'll see now going into next year for Shannon Simmons if they're going to be overrated and maybe get drafted too high. I see in the chat here, Dave was saying that he thinks Simmons is overrated and he's actually being in the discussion now. He hasn't been ranked yet in our patron rankings and he's right now. Currently, it's in between him and a couple other guys, including someone who Dave says should definitely be in front of him. And it's the next guy I want to talk about, Zach Parise, who is another person a lot like... Claude Giroux, actually, who's, like, a guy who's really good, like, top line on his team, takes a ton of shots. We all, like, have loved Zach Parise for a long time, and going into this year, I actually loved him so much, I drafted him third in the Cucupful. I don't even know how, actually, when I look back at who I drafted, I don't know how I came second in my league, because I got Carlson first, that was amazing. Then I took Tuka Rask, who was a huge bust, we might actually talk about him later today. Then I took Zach Parise third. Also, kind of a bust, and, you know, he was injured for a bit, but, you know, one of the main reasons I took Parise is because Fantasy Hockey Geek takes into account all the categories, and he's always been someone who takes a ton of shots, so I thought he would win me the shots category, and then, you know, get me the 70 points that he's been getting for the past long while. Like, if you look at his past few seasons, like, 62 points and 74 the year before this one, 57 and 67 before that, um, you know, then you start getting into some really high seasons, and also, like, a ton of shots. He was always getting over, like, 204, 250 shots, This season, 53 points in 70 games, which is, like, not the pace that I was expecting. That's closer to, like, a 60-point pace as opposed to the 70-point pace. And I guess the same question here is, do we think he's now a 60-point guy? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but there's a big difference between a 60-point guy and a 70-point guy. And, and, you know, it's clear that people are down on him just by the fact that he hasn't been ranked yet. We've ranked 55 players in our patron ranking. Zach Parise is not there yet. So, Yeah. The big question is like, where do you see him for next year?
1: You know, Elon, you always cut right to the chase and it throws me off in my answer because I don't want to just give you the answer right away. You know, I want to go through all the stuff, but you still disrespect all the The process. <laughs> the process. The process. It's all about the process. And the process begins for me with remembering that Parisi, he's already, like, this is his fifth season as a member of the Wild. It feels like just yesterday that he and Suter signed that huge contract. Maybe not yesterday, but like a couple seasons ago, not five. Uh, And I think a lot of us may have this conception of him as having been a real upstart dynamic scorer as a New Jersey Devil whose ability to produce has been somewhat muted since moving to Minnesota. He had an 80-point pace on average over his last four years in New Jersey. Uh, Though one of those years, it's fair to mention that it was all but lost to injury. He played like 11 games. Since moving to Minnesota, his full-season pace has actually been 66 points uh, in a wild jersey. The incredible part of that is that he's never actually reached 66 points in his time with the Wild. That's just been his full season pace if you combine all his games together. So how is this possible? It's because it's an 82-game pace, but Parisi hasn't ever really come close to playing 82 games in a single year as a member of the Wild. He did play the full 48-game lockout-shortened season, but after that, he missed between 8 and 15 games from each of the other three. But again, even if he did play 82 games this year... We, would have, we might have been able to expect him to get 66 points based on his pace as a member of the Wild, but his pace this specific season would have fallen four points short of that. He is 53 points, where his, lodle, his lowest total since his rookie season back in 2005-2006, and they signify the third lowest points per game rate of his 11-year career. The odd thing, though, is usually if this sort of thing happens, you see that everything dropped in his rate stats but it was reasonably stable like Elon you mentioned he had fewer shots yeah he was averaging about one shot fewer per 60 minutes and two shot attempts less per 60 minutes which is not a drop that you should be able to just ignore and forget about but it's actually in line with most of his career last year uh, the season before the most recent one in 2014-15 his numbers actually got a pretty big bump and they took a fall relative to that season, um, but relative to like the several seasons before that they didn't. So that's why I'm going to say that Parisi's numbers last year were relatively stable compared to the rest of his career, especially in a Minnesota jersey. They are still more Minnesota Parisi than they are New Jersey Parisi, but there's no cratering or like huge drop-off that suggests that Parisi has suddenly taken a nosedive in his ability to generate offense. But some people have taken a nosedive in their ability to generate offense. At least they did last season. One of his most common linemates was Jason Pominville. We detailed his struggles all season long. Pommenville manages 36 points all year, the lowest total in his 11-year career. This is a huge drop for Jason Pominville, as I insisted, all year long was uncharacteristic. Mikhail Granlin also took a step back last year. After two years of scoring just under a 50-point pace, Granlin stagnated. We thought he might be able to keep pushing and actually get those 50 points this year. He finished the year at 44 points, barely edging his previous career high, uh, but he only even got that far by playing 14 more games than he ever had before. Pominville was shooting 7%, well below career average. Granlin was shooting his typical 8%, which is, well, Granlin is not a sniper, so it's a low number, but it could be about what to expect from him. I think these guys, his most common line mates were as much a culprit as anybody in Parisi's 53-point season. And that's the reason I'm not overly concerned. Can he get back to New Jersey Parisi form where he was an 80-point pace kind of guy? I doubt it. Anybody holding out hope for that should just about give up on that dream. But I still believe he is a 60-plus point player in a good year, and I still think he's got one or two more of those left.
0: Well, 60-plus, that's what he basically was this year, getting around a 60-point pace. I'm asking more if you—if he's closer to 60 or if he's closer to 70.
1: Um, so I'm going to go closer to 60. I think 60 is a good floor for him. I think 65 would be great. Um, we don't know what the effect of Bruce Boudreaux in Minnesota will be yet, what he chooses to do with that team and how he chooses to operate. That's going to have some impact. But if you take his Minnesota-point pace of 66 points – on an 82-game season, I feel like there's still reason to expect about that much from him, but not a whole lot more. I wouldn't expect him to have an upside. Like, 70 for me would be his absolute ceiling.
0: Yes, you know what, Brian? I don't. I mean, obviously, like we're nitpicking over a few points here or there, but I think I might disagree with you. Like, I think I'm actually more convinced. Obviously, all the advanced stats are amazing, but actually, the thing that always gets to me is like the line mates. And you're right. Like, Pominville was so like blech, and like Macal Grandland was like nothing exciting, and like I just kind of feel like. Minnesota will figure out some good line mates to play him with. Maybe Granlin will get back up to where he should be, or like Zucker could maybe step up and end up there. Like, I feel like probably he could have better line mates than the Jason Pominvilles who brought him down during the year. Maybe Pominville could get better again. Like, I know you always say he will, but I I see him as being able to be more like a 65 to 70 point guy again. Like, I'm going to give him another chance. I say, you know, it's only been one strike where he's been a 60 point guy. I'm still going to give him, he still took a good number of shots he end ended the year really strong, which I like to look at. I'd be curious to know, actually, at some point, maybe we should do a research project and see how much the end of the year, um, like, projects the next year versus, like, the full season, just because, you know, that's what most recently happened. That's, like, the most current thing of how he's, like, I don't know, I know you're going to say no because it's smaller sample size. I'm saying I'd like to do some research. That's all. Don't make this face at me. Okay. Anyways. Do
1: do some research. I mean, there is some research that validates that for playoffs. Like, if you look at team-wide stats, whatever teams have had the strongest... 25 final games of the regular season tend to be able to carry that over into the postseason and translate that into postseason success. I don't know if it works the same way, like Elon. In the off season, so much changes. Like there's the draft, there's a lot of trades, there's free agency, there's new coaches, there's different summer workout routines, there's different chem. Ah, there's so many different things that happen. I don't know how valid that last 20 game sample of the previous season can possibly be when you start up the next one. I'm also going to throw one more little factoid in there, Elon, to challenge your thought that Parisa could be a 65-70 point guy. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm just saying he's never scored more than 62 points in a season with the Minnesota Wild. I'm wondering, are you taking into account injuries, or are you saying a 65-70 point pace?
0: I'm talking pace. He's going to get injured again, Just hopefully if you draft him, not at a time when you really need him. Like this year, at least he was nice with his injuries. He got injured like in the middle of the year, came back well in time for the playoffs. So I can't blame him for that. All right, Brian, everyone is asking for it in the chat here. Do you want to bet? 65 point pace, plus or minus, I'll say over.
1: So I would say under, but I want the condition that injuries... Like aren't affected. Like I'm taking yeah, pace. into. A- I'm taking account. No, no, I don't want pace. I want counting total at the end of the year because I'm saying injuries. Injuries are one of the reasons why he's not going to crack sixty-five points in my opinion, or <laughs> why he'd be hard, hard pressed to do it.
0: All right. Well, you kind of invalidated this whole conversation because I was just asking you if you think he's closer to a sixty-point pace or a seventy-point pace. So it sounds like you're saying you think he will be a seventy-point pace. But no, he'll just get injured. In which case, I agree with you.
1: No, I don't. I don't know if I've invalidated the whole, how (laughs) to say are You're switching everything up with the paces and the total output. When you ask me... Every other bet we've made was paces. I know, but this one specifically, my projection for him is a 60-65 point guy uh, encompasses, takes into a controls for those 10 to 15 missed games. Okay.
0: Okay, great. So you've heard it here first. Brian thinks Zach Parise is gonna put up a seventy point pace next year. So I didn't you think say he's gonna And I don't say that. If you
1: say if you no.
0: say that he's gonna have sixty to sixty five points and miss ten games, that's what you're saying.
1: No, I'm saying right. I'm saying he's not going to I would be surprised if he had know. a pace that was higher than his sixty six point pace in a Minnesota Wild uniform. I'm hanging my hat on that. Do you wanna take higher? <sighs> you think he's gonna get a seventy point pace?
0: I think he's going to have higher than a 65 point pace. So, if you don't want to make that bet, then we don't have to do it. So, we'll move on. I want to talk about this more on Facebook and actually figure out what you're saying because I don't fully get what you're projecting about him. It sounds like you're high on him, though, just that he's going to get injured, which what, I agree.
1: What don't let's you go get? on to the next. No, tell me what, don't you? Let's make it clear. If you don't get it, maybe a listener doesn't get it. What don't <laughs> you get?
0: I. Feel like I asked you, do you think he's more of a sixty-point pace guy or a seventy-point pace guy? And you said seventy would be amazing, but you see him closer to sixty. And okay. so I said, okay, so you cool, know, what? I was do over under.
1: I was I was answering that as a as a counting question. Although I still like, okay. I still apart, I'm not ready to take that bet. But I feel like he, I'm more confident he'll be more in the range of sixty sixty five point pace than I am sixty five seventy. How's that? All right, so think about. Think about it, and maybe we'll make a bet,
0: because I'm willing to take over 65. So, let's move on to the next player (laughs) that we have planned. Uh, Just to give a quick, um, like, setup here, we can answer some questions to the patrons of Keeping Carlson, so I set up a question thread on the Facebook group, so if you have something you want us to talk about, we'll get to, like, one or two questions at the end, but the next player or I should say players that we want to talk about it's actually funny I guess you probably know who I'm going to talk about just by saying players because when do you ever lump two players into a discussion as if they're like the same player like why would we do that why not talk about one player at a time but of course I'm talking about the Sedins in Vancouver who just are always uh like lumped together like I remember going into last season of the, uh, like, uh, doing Keeping Carlson episodes, I remember we talked about how the Sedins had a really amazing year and then we thought, wow, like, are they going to be able to do this again? You know, because they had had a bad year the year before that and I just remember we've been every year basically going like, bad year, good year, bad year. This year was a bad one. The Sedins didn't do well for Vancouver and it's always like they're linked. If one is bad, the other's bad. These guys are getting older, and unfortunately, this year was not one of the good ones. And I don't know whether to blame the Sedins, whether to blame their total lack of like good line mates or people to play with on the power play. But I want to know in general, Brian, like, is it time finally to give up on the Sedins? Because somehow I'm sure they're gonna get drafted as like 60, 70-point guys. But at the same time, like, this year they weren't. They were lower than, they were, like, around 60-point guys, I guess. And I just want to know, for next year, like, how do you see them? Is it over now? Are they now as bad as this season was? Like, taking into account their whole linemate situation, how Vancouver is just, like, a train wreck? Or do you still see them doing better than they did this year?
1: Okay, there's something I just have to say right off the top. When you say a bad season, you're talking, like, bad relative to their prime, Right Because Daniel Sedin as a 35 year old, scored 61 points in the NHL this season on a very thin Vancouver Canucks roster. Uh, some of those games without Henrik as well. Uh, so can we just clarify you mean bad? Not? Well, I guess okay,
0: 60 points. It's like I guess the same question is take, exactly take it back, Elon.
1: take it back.
0: You love the Sedins. I don't know. Okay. Like, 60... But, you know, 60 points. Like, I'm sure Daniel Sedin was drafted, and the person drafting him expected more than 60 points going to this year. And Henrik Sedin was even lower, right? He had only 55 points in 74 games, which I guess works out to about 60 points. So, same gist. Like... At the same time, they're both now thirty-five years old. So are they on an up like are they on a downtrend, I guess? Like is this now they had sixty and they're gonna go down to fifty-five? Like, you know, that's kind of what you'd expect as a player ages, or was this a you know, sort of just a bad luck season and next year they're gonna get back to sixty-five, seventy like they were two years ago?
1: Right. I think that's the better question. Are they able to still produce those huge seasons, or are they going to age as a regular elite NHLer if there is such a thing can age at this point and you mentioned you made reference to how they've both been on a bit of a roller coaster over the last few years uh speaking of Daniel Sedin specifically first I'll start with him he entered his 30s as an above and I guess it all stands for Henrik too um they entered their 30s as above point per game players then they quote unquote fell off a bit to become just a point per game player and then uh, they both had disastrous seasons a couple years ago Uh, Daniel's point total was 47, then he bounced back, besting that point total by 29 points, a 29-point year-over-year improvement, 76 points as a 34-year-old, that is no common feat in the NHL, that's only happened seven times since the 2010-11 seasons, in the last six years, and that now, after consecutive seasons, uh, the question going into this most recent season, so he had consecutive seasons where he went from the lowest of lows, and then marched right back up to previous heights, It was a huge question mark. Where was he going to end up? Was he going to put up a point total that reflected the bad season or the good season? Which one was the aberration? And he answered that question very definitively by putting up a point total that fell smack in the middle of those polarities. Like, exactly in the middle. Couldn't be more in the middle. It's pretty funny
0: when you look at it. He had 48 points, 76 points, 61 points. So, like, how do you project this guy now going into the next year?
1: Only from a sedine right? And actually, here's a real interesting tidbit about Daniel that I learned while researching for this episode. Um, so if you look at his shot totals last season, they were awesome. As a 35-year-old, he posted the third highest shots on goal total of his 16-year career, 258 on the season. Here's the cool thing. Daniel Sedin, the more shots he takes, the better his shooting percentage becomes. And that's not normal. Like, some of you might think, like, gut reaction, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, uh, he takes more shots, he scores more goals, and everything goes well. But you shouldn't be shooting more effectively because you take more shots. But over Sadin's career, there is this correlation between shots on goal and a higher shooting percentage, and that little quirk helped Sadin score more goals last season than he had in the previous three years. Uh, so let's turn our attention now to next season. Now that we saw that last year, we saw what went right. He took a lot of shots. Shooting percentage went up accordingly. Uh, is repeating 60 points going to be a reasonable expectation? And I want to point out, and I think I did this, Elon, right off the top when I took you to task for the way you asked your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is reasonable for him to repeat 60 points. Um but if you are someone who thinks it's super reasonable, no doubt about it, like if he doesn't do it, then there's something wrong with him. A 36-year-old in the NHL, which is the age he's going to be at the start of next season, has only reached or surpassed 60 points on 13 occasions in the last 16 years. Three of those occasions were Marty St. Louis. Marty so only 10 unique players in the last six years have been 36 years of age and scored 60 points or more in a season. Uh, I think Daniel could be... Number 11, but he's going to need to do a couple things to get himself there. The first thing he's going to need to do is keep picking up his power play production. We know that there's this quirk as players age, their power play production is able to stave off that age related decline longer than even strength production. So Daniel's going to need to keep scoring with the Extra Man to make up for any decline at even strength um, that he uh, suffers so to speak. The second thing he's going to need to do is he's going to need to keep taking shots on net. I made a big point of saying that already. Another season of great shot rates from Sedin is going to be a key factor in getting him the goals he needs. And looking at this roster, who else could he be playing with uh, that should be taking shots instead of him? So hopefully he's still the trigger man. Although the other side of the coin is that if Daniel doesn't shoot, uh, how is he going to score? Or, or who's, how is he going to score points? Because nobody else is going to be shooting and scoring uh, on that roster as we know it right now. Although maybe that all changes if they throw big money at David Backus or Troy Brower. But that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, going back to the point for the Sedins, uh, for Daniel, uh, power play production, high-end shot rates, That is the route that Daniel needs to take to keep reaching 60 points. He has upside for more. I still feel in my heart of hearts, I don't know, this might be like some Sadin love coming out. I still hope for 65 and like in my wildest dreams, he can get 70, uh, but I don't think that that upside can be activated, so to speak, when he's surrounded by the Canucks roster that he is. It would take that much more of an individual effort, which would admittedly be difficult to do at the age of 36.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's only one season away from having 76 points, so, like, 70 points is still attainable for him, but at the same time, obviously, yeah, like, it's gonna be hard, but, like, how worried are we? Like, it's gonna be, we know that Daniel Sedin is gonna play with Henrik Sedin, that's already two-thirds of the line set up, the third guy, like, Yannick Hansen, you know, had an okay season playing there for most of the time, Um, we have some other guys maybe on Vancouver who could, like, sit there, like, uh, Alex Burrows, I don't know if Bo Horvat, depending on the side he plays on, like, there are potentially some other people, and then on the power play, you know, it's, like, these same types of guys that we're talking about, I guess Verbata's not gonna be back, like, maybe Vancouver can sign someone else, Horvat probably is the kind of guy that does have upside to be good, so yeah, like, but just in general, I guess my question more isn't about, like, which guy, but, like... Does the fact that the Sedins don't have great line mates, does that bother you? Or is just the fact that it's two-thirds of the line is a Sedine? is that good enough?
1: It's been good enough for a long time. and I, like, That's a huge question now, though. As they get older, we don't know exactly how these guys are going to age. It's amazing how similar they've been throughout their careers. I imagine their fates are somewhat tied. I don't know the impact. Uh, that the third person on the line can have. I mean, keep in mind, I'm trying, Elon, I don't know if you can bring up while I'm talking um, their most common line mates over the years. I feel like I want to mention Alex Burrows as somebody they played with and made look good for at least some chunk of their career. And we know the kind of player he is. So that makes me wonder uh, if it doesn't so much matter who the third guy is. But before we move on completely the second guy matters and that's Henrik or the first if you're a Henrik fan maybe he's the first guy um like I said he had the similar up and down roller coaster as Daniel rebounded from a super disappointing season uh but didn't rebound as hard as Daniel did uh just had 55 points in his most recent season not a very not a very Henrik or sedine like point total um yeah you can always say the 50 points was worse so at least it wasn't that um but that 50 points was the only time he scored less than 55 points since the 2005- 2006 campaign. Um, but if we look at Henrik, my reason for not being terribly concerned about him is his injury issues, which seemed to really hamper him last year. His Iron Man streak ended, uh, and I actually this is the, the cool little quirk I learned researching Henrik this week um, over at Canucks Army from Jeremy Davis in an article about Henrik's year. If you suspect somebody is playing with injury and they're a centerman and you want to figure out if it's affecting their play, but you have no official way to confirm it, what you can do is you can take a look at their face-off percentage for the period that, uh, during which they're injured. And it seems that if you see a significant dip in face-off percentage that could very well signify the possibility that that centerman was playing through an injury. And sure enough, we see that dip show up in Henrik's faceoff numbers last season. Just around the midpoint of last year, he went a fair while winning draws at just a 30 to 40% success rate, well below what we would expect from him. So, does this mean that Henrik was just suffering injuries and having the offseason to heal? He should be right back up to 60 65 with Daniel. Hard to say. I'm a little more reticent to say he'll get there than I am about Daniel, because injuries, you know, we assume that Henrik's going to heal from them, but they're a real thing, especially as players get older, and we don't know if this is one that's going to nag him over the next little while, or if it's going to be re-aggravated at some point next year. So I would exercise some more caution with Henrik than I would with Daniel. Of course, Henrik offers assists. Daniel offers goals. If you're looking to zero in on one category in your format, at a time in your draft where you have a choice between the two. While you could draft Daniel at 60 points with upside, I'd be more conservative with Henrik, thinking that straight-up 60 points is the most that I would want to rely on him for.
0: Right, yeah. Like, it'll be it'll be fun to see. Like, I, I don't know. The, the Canucks just... I, do you have a quick take also about that trade that they made recently?
1: Good Branson for McCann.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people have been hammering the Canucks for that one. And just in general, just doesn't seem like they're setting up a situation for the Sedines to succeed too much. Or maybe, like, they could still get their points, but the team doesn't seem like it's in good shape. I don't know if you want to give a quick take on that.
1: (laughs) My take, you've probably heard by now, is fairly similar to others that have been out there. It's just, I, I I don't necessarily understand what the Canucks are trying to do with it. Like, usually you want to see the purpose or motive behind any deal... Uh, the Canucks acquiring like a top four hopefully a top four defenseman uh, that's the best case scenario from Good Goodbranson uh, to shore up a D core that is just like totally weak and a forward core that also isn't there like I don't know what that's going to do for them it's going to let them tread water longer before totally collapsing in the standings. Uh, McCann is a young guy who might not be a sure-fire high upside guy but I felt like the upside was still there and still worth exploring um, before moving on to a guy who you essentially know what you're getting with and also is not going to take this team to another level or I feel like be a really important contributing factor to this team at a moment when they're competitive because I don't see the Canucks being competitive until they do go into a full tank and rebuild, which, man, I don't know if that's the direction they're going with this trade. So that that's why I question the motives. I, I hope it works out. I hope Good Branson turns out to live up to you know the hype that was around him when he was drafted he was drafted um in the midst of a bunch of other high-end D-men there were several in his draft here I'm just bringing them up now he was drafted third overall in 2010 uh the D-men drafted around him oh sorry no he was the only defenseman drafted in the top 10 he and Dylan McElrath were drafted oh, in the okay. top 10. So not a great year for drafting D-Men. Cam Fowler was probably the the best name, drafted 12th overall that year. And actually, it's like a graveyard if you go through the D-Men drafted in the first round in 2010. Um, so maybe Branson can somehow live up to that third overall billing. But I, I'm not optimistic at this point.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Also, you asked about Canucks line mates for, Daniel's, uh, for Daniel Henrik sedin I would say the best one recently was obviously Brian Kessler before he got traded. But I'm gonna plant my flag and say the best ever Sedine line mate, Marcus Nasland. Nice. There you go. <laughs> Mic drop. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> uh I guess we're running uh out of time right now, so why don't we get to a couple of questions, Brian? Or is there someone else you prepared? Really hard for that you want to talk about. We could always just talk about them the next week, I guess. Yeah.
1: Well, we're going to continue on this theme in our next episode. Guys who had disappointing season. Who you're wondering? You're going to look at their point, to- point totals from this season when preparing for your draft next year, and wondering what the heck to do with them to trust that point total from last year or to hope for, for a bounce back. We've got a few more names, but Elon, let's uh, let's let's keep them for part two. So yeah, if there are any questions from the gallery.
0: Yeah, I've got I've got a few questions. Also, I'll just point out you could tweet at us at Keeping Carlson if you have a name of a player that you think fits this bill that you want us to talk about, like some guys that we have already on the docket. I guess, like you know McKinnon, we've been talking a lot about on Facebook. Like, is he? the 70, 80-point guy that we all thought he was after his rookie season? Or is he now closer to the 50, 60-point guy that, he, that he's that he been over the past couple of years? Or is that just, like, the Colorado avalanche effect? And once they straighten out Patrick Waugh, maybe they'll be able to get him back to where he should be. He's a guy... We also have a couple of goalies. I actually prepared Tuka Rask, who I wanted to talk about, like, last week. But we'll get to him. But He had such a brutal year. Also, like, a guy like Henrik Lundqvist, who had, like, a great year until the end of the year when he fell apart. You know, Brian, that's the whole thing. Like, I was saying... How much weight do you put into the end of the season? I guess you're going to say Lungfist is fine. We'll get to that. But yeah, let us know if you have some names of guys who really let you down this year. All right, I'm going on the Facebook group. I'm looking at the questions. This is totally unprepared because we're just looking at them now. Uh, A lot of questions actually about rumors. So maybe we could just, in general, talk about how we treat rumors as fantasy players. Because I'm seeing here, Corey is asking, I heard Jordan Stahl may be out of Carolina now we discuss landing spots for him then he's talking about the Red Wings they might be signing Radulov who had a, another great year in the KHL and it's the rumor is he's going to come to the NHL uh, but we don't know yet where he's going to land uh, then we also have, like, Lewis is asking about Tyson Barry. The word is that Barry might get traded from Colorado, which would be, like, crazy. Why would they not want Tyson Barry? So I don't know if you have any comments with those guys in particular, or maybe just, I'm curious, because I know, Brian, you usually don't like to give much credence to these rumors of players moving around. So, like, what's your general take on how you handle this kind of news as it's coming in? Like, what if you're a Tyson Barry fantasy owner, or you have the ability to trade for him now in a keeper league? How do you decide, like, what to do with this information that he might get traded from Colorado?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't want to discount all the questions about rumors, but my personal reaction to them as, like, for my own team, is I will deal with that if and when it actually happens. Uh, There were rumors about Yuri Hoodler getting traded towards the end of last season. I owned him on my fantasy team, knowing full well that he could get traded, but I didn't make any anticipatory moves in case he did. Of course, he did get traded, and if I remember right, his production did go down a little bit. Um, It did go down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I could have prepared myself for it, uh, but I feel like there's so many rumors, so much speculation all season long about all manners of players. And in in many cases, sometimes even the rumored move won't change a player's fortune that much. And Tyson Barry, I feel like might be one of uh, an example of a guy like that who can get 50 points on a team coached by someone who apparently hates him. Straight up does not like him, does not believe in him. He's got 50 points there. I can't see that his value goes down if he stays in Colorado uh, any longer, if he puts up any less than 50 points. And really, once you've got someone who got who, who can get 50 points from the blue line, they're already sort of in a tier where it's not... For me, I don't see where if you split hairs on him, if he can get another 5 or 10 in the right situation somewhere else. For me, it's too much too much speculation. So I, I like to just go by exactly how things stand today. Some people really succeed, though, by making anticipatory moves, and, and, and they can work. Uh, but for now, like, you know, my, my basic take is, does it significantly improve or uh, worsen a player's own situation? Rarely is the case where a trade does have uh, such, a, such a drastic effect.
0: Yeah, and I guess especially if we're talking about a guy like Jordan Stahl, who we've already covered on the podcast, was a bit overrated last year. Like He had that really amazing run, but like, he's a 50-point guy. I guess he'll probably be that way either way and like Tyson Barry like you say maybe he has more upside if he's playing for a coach that actually likes him I think the big rumor here of all the ones we mentioned is obviously Radulov who hasn't been in the NHL for a long time so we should at least give the primer because maybe some people have the ability to just grab him off a of free agency right now like I don't know the exact situation but if that's the kind of thing where you can just take this guy now for free if you're in that kind of league now would be the time to do so because the word is he's coming to the NHL we don't know yet which team but this is a guy 29 years old so he's not over the hill just yet in the KHL over the past four seasons he's been over a point per game like significantly over a point per game actually except for I guess in here 2013-14 he was exactly a point per game aside from that he's been great he had a couple of seasons with Nashville as we know in the NHL he was okay 58 points one year uh, seven points in nine games 2011-12 before he left the team so this is a guy who probably can make an impact In the NHL. Oh, Dave is saying, yeah, he's not under the hill either. Yeah, I'm not saying he's going to be a point-per-game guy (laughs) in the NHL, but probably he could, like, be a solid, like, 60-point guy, I'd imagine. Like, we'll obviously have to depend on his situation. The question was specifically about a rumor going to the Red Wings, which would be probably a nice place to go, considering Pavel Datsyuk probably won't be returning, so they have an open spot for him. So... I think he's a guy that we'll, we'll talk about him when he does get signed. Like you say, Brian, like that's not put too much speculation because we don't know who he's going to be playing with, what his role is going to be, but he's a guy that is probably going to be in the NHL next year. And if you could get him right now for free, like, why not?
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's the extent. I mean, and we had this sort of conversation with Panarin coming over too. It's a little different. It's not quite a trade. It's like a brand new, mature, fully developed player. In this case, a past NHLer returning to the league. Uh, I think that's fair, Elon, to hope for about 60 points from him. We'll get into it more, I think, when we, when we know where he might be playing.
0: Yeah, we have actually a lot of players who like we were thinking about talking about for this episode, but we thought it wasn't even worth it because they're gonna be a lot of these guys are free agents who we're just gonna wait and see where they sign and talk about them then. You know, we have the Andrew Ladd. You know, he had a very disappointing season or Eric Stahl, but these guys, you know, they're gonna be moved. So let's just wait. Let's see where they land, and then we'll see if we think they can bounce back or if they're gonna be bad. Lockposto, well, Dave's bringing up Akposo in the chat. Yeah, he. I'm, I was specifically talking about guys with disappointing seasons. I think Akposo still did pretty well. But yeah, we'll definitely be talking about all, oh, like, this, the podcast is going to pick up. For those of you who've been enjoying the Summer Series, like, thanks so much for listening. We're glad you've liked it. We haven't had too much to talk about. It's not going to be long before the playoffs are over, free agent signings start happening, and then we're going to have a lot of fun. But we're still having fun. And okay, the one last question from Facebook I'll just bring up. I guess we talk about it every week. So it wouldn't be a Summer Series 2016 episode of Keeping Carlson if we didn't talk about Matt Murray on the Penguins. Uh, so obviously he's still continuing to be the number one goalie. He came in for one game for Pittsburgh. They lost. They brought Murray back in. They won game seven. Now they're in the finals, winning two games to one. He's been great. And the question from Corey is, lastly, with Murray continuing to play amazingly so far, I seriously think he may be the 40% guy in a 60-40 split if not traded entirely by next season. So I don't know. Brian, do you have an update on your opinion of where to draft Matt Murray and obviously by proxy, like where to draft Marc-Andre Fleury next year? You already said that you thought Fleury goes down a bit. I assume we're just kind of still there. Like Fleury is not a sure thing anymore, but neither is Matt Murray.
1: Yeah, talk to me at training camp. There's so much I can change. That's not to like disregard the question entirely. It's a real thought, and especially people who own those guys right now or are trying to value them in a trade, uh, or anyone who drafts sooner than training camp. Uh, you're in a tough predicament. Uh, and and to you, I say, uh, I feel at this point like Matt Murray could very well be the Penguin starter going forward. I find it very hard to think that Marc-Andre Fleury gets more than a 50-50 share. Um, Matt Murray could also, and I think I've said this, could also come in not do so hot at the start of next season. Fleury comes in, retakes the job. And they, but I feel like all the while, they're still seeing that Matt Murray is a goalie who can survive the NHL playoffs in his rookie season, which generally means that he's a goalie who can survive the NHL on a regular basis. Uh, his name isn't Cam Ward, at least not yet. So there is still that hope that he won't... Or there still at least is that hope that he can carry through. Cam Ward is, of course, the the danger example of what could happen to somebody going on this kind of run. Um, But the Penguins have to be thinking of Fleury in a lesser role or to be traded entirely. Um, And for Fleury's value, traded entirely would probably work out better for him, I think, going into next season. I mean... I
0: don't know, because, like, Fleury's been on this great Pittsburgh Penguins team. Like, what if he gets traded to, like, Calgary or, you know, like, there are some landing spots for Marc-Andre Fleury where I wouldn't be too excited about having him, that's for sure.
1: Where you'd prefer 30, 35 games in a Penguins uniform over, like, 60 games in a Flames uniform, that sort of thing? Yeah, well,
0: yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, based on what we've seen from Calgary goalies in the past couple of years. I mean, Calgary, by the way does have a lot of good young players, and they might eventually be able to... I'm not saying, like, Calgary's a disaster like Vancouver, by the way. Like, But, you know, lately it hasn't been exactly so exciting to own a Calgary Flames goalie. I will also say about Matt Murray, you say he's no Cam Ward yet. I, I want to also point out he's no Andrew Hammond. Like, he's not a guy who came out of nowhere and just put up amazing numbers. Like, if you take a look at his numbers in the minors, he's been like, you know, 940, 930 save percentage every year. And now with the Penguins, he's been, like, a 930 guy, like, when he was playing a bit in the regular season. So, like, this is a guy with a huge pedigree that's been good for, like, a lot of years. He's not just coming out of nowhere. Like, this is a guy I guess we should have assumed would be good when he came up to the NHL, and maybe we didn't expect him to be this good and to be able to hold up, you know, against this much pressure. But, yeah. So, hopefully that answers your question, Corey. It's like, yeah, Matt Murray probably is going to be worthwhile drafting next year. You say 40% on Pittsburgh? Who knows? I feel that that's maybe like the floor of the number of games he'll get.
1: Yeah, I agree, assuming things go well. I was almost about to get really upset with you, Elon, saying that Marie has... When you you suggested that Marie has differentiated himself from Andrew Hammond, uh, but I'm glad you went with the, you know, has some kind of pedigree route, which Hammond, of course, lacked, which is why... His whole story was able to take shape the way it did because nobody wanted him because he hadn't succeeded. And then anyway, we all know the story. I'm not going to recap it. But Matt Murray also, I I thought Elon, you were going to go with games played and saying, well, he's proven himself more than Andrew Hammond at the NHL level. I can't quite get behind that just yet. Uh, I feel like this is not a run that's gone on any longer than what Andrew Hammond was able to manage. Of course, it's in the pressure cooker of the NHL playoffs, but I, I could say the sins with Hammond were in the playoffs every day because every game was a must-win, but of course their competition was not in the same position. Uh, more faith in Murray than Hammond going forward, needless to say.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, my point was just that Hammond came out of nowhere. He's never been that good. That's why you kept on saying he's gonna fall off eventually. And it kind of like, for a little while, you looked bad. But eventually, like, you know, going to this season, anyone who drafted Andrew Hammond felt like a real idiot. Like that was like a backup goalie that didn't do very good. But uh, Matt Murray is someone we've expected to do good for a while. Like I said, okay, I guess that's the end of the show. This has been a lot of fun. The time just flies by. Thanks to everyone who joined us here in the chat. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. We always, of course, appreciate a five-star review. If
1: possible, we'll take it. Also, if you're listening to this show after the fact, let us know how you felt about the live environment. This is something we're considering doing more often for our regular episodes going into next season. It's a thought. We want to know if you like the dynamism and all the excitement (laughs) and the flubs and the speech mistakes uh, as we go, or if it's a real real drop-off compared to the normally carefully edited product, although this will get a quick once-over. But we want to get your feedback on how this episode went and sounded to you. How did you feel listening to it? Any different than the usual kinds of episodes that we release?
0: Yeah, I, I have a lot of fun doing the live shows, and obviously this is the summer series. We don't have like a a million people in the chat room. We do have some awesome people in the chat room, though, uh, including people cheering for the Golden State Warriors. So that's why they have to leave right now. Good luck, Bobby. But uh, uh, like, I, I really like it. I think in the regular season, it's it's really fun because that's when you know we could really just be like watching the games and seeing what's happening, discussing. But okay, yes. Uh, Thank you for listening to a Summer Series live episode, and we definitely want to hear your feedback. I already said iTunes. It's a real thing, by the way. You could really help the show for nothing just by uh, giving us a five-star review on iTunes. If you want to, like, do something for us, not for nothing, and maybe for yourself, look into being a patron of Keeping Carlson, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You have access to our Facebook group. You have access to our monthly patron casts. Uh, You're going to be able to join our couple right now if you want to become a patron in the summer. Any donation amount you want to give us, you can sign up for anything, and you become a patron Keeping Carlson, we'll invite you to the Facebook group. You could join in on our daily voting for who should be ranked next. Uh, thanks to Dave, of course, for setting that up. He's the best. Okay, that's it. I'm rambling enough. I'm going to cue that outro music, which I'll put in in post-production. And Brian, why don't you go
1: ahead and read us the credits? All right, this episode of... All right, this episode of the Keeping <laughs> Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast... Was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Roto World, Corsica Hockey, War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Yahoo Sports, ESPN Fantasy Hockey. I forgot. The, I forgot the word "and" in there. Yahoo Sports and ESPN Fantasy Hockey.
0: Well done, Brian. Actually no, I'm not gonna say well done. That wasn't well done. And I'm not editing out your flub. Everyone has to hear it. (laughs) But
1: thanks for you hanging right there.
0: Alright, no, great job overall. Of course, this has been a really fun episode. Thank you to everyone for joining us again, and we will catch you all for our next summer series episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on keeping
1: Carlson.